If you would, please open your Bibles to the book of Daniel. That's where our lesson is going to be uh, here this morning, the book of Daniel. And as you turn there, um, I want to say a couple things. One, congratulations. I see a lot of orange in the, uh, in the auditorium this morning. That was a pretty exciting game yesterday for uh, any of you who you know, watched it or are college football fans. Uh, so, uh, so congratulations to the, the Tennessee Volunteer fans out there. I want to say something, and I mean this, and this is a compliment. Um, if you're going to move to a new area, like, like when you're making a decision to, to leave home and to go live in a new place, the most important thing to ask yourself if you're going to live in this other place is if the people there are rooting for a team that's not your favorite team, are they an obnoxious fan base or not? Um, and, and there are a lot of obnoxious fan bases out there, but I can say so far, you guys have been pretty, pretty good. <laughs> other than a little few too many wrong color orange and the real UT comments, other than that, I'm a Texas Longhorns fan, by the way. Uh, other than that, you guys have been, been really good. And uh, as uh, it seems like uh, you have a season that's going in a good direction, so, so congratulations. Um, Thinking about that, though, something that, and this is, this is actually, you know, something that I think about sometimes is I am a, a Texas Longhorns fan, and uh, I never want to be, like, an obnoxious fan, even when I'm living, like, among other people. Some people, I think, take pride in that, like, like uh, seeing how, how irritating they could be. Uh, something that I have made a goal of mine I want to be obnoxious in as few areas as possible when I'm dealing with other people. I know I don't always succeed, but that's just something I think is probably a wise thing to do. Uh, you know, like when people see you coming and they go, oh, that's not a good sign. Um, and so, so you want to try to live your life in a way that you know, your presence doesn't irritate others. Um, one of the reasons, by the way, just kind of thinking about, uh, about what I've already said, uh, that I could never preach in Oklahoma is, <laughs> well, uh, you can figure that out. But uh, <laughs> when you're living as a foreigner in a different land, uh, if you're living as a Longhorns fan among volunteers, uh, trying to uh, fit in, trying to make the best of it, uh, I think that's an important thing to do. And I think uh, while it's kind of funny to talk about doing that with football, there are other ways in which that's a really important uh, mindset to have as well. How do you live among people who are different than you in such a way that uh, you can get along, but then also you can stand for your principles? How is it that you can live among people who are different than you and uh, resist the constant, unending urge and temptation to give in and live exactly like they do while betraying who you are and who you were called to be, uh, that, that's, that's, a, that's a difficult battle, and it's one that seems like it, it never ends. Um, there's, a, there's a movie uh, uh, with uh, Christopher Walken and Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, with Catch Me If You Can. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but uh, towards the beginning of it, Christopher Walken, I wish I could do a great Christopher Walken impression. I can't, otherwise I would do it right now as I told this story. But he's uh, standing up in front of a group of people and he tells a story. He says, two mice fell into a bucket of cream. The, quick my, the first mouse quickly gave up and drowned, but that second mouse, he kept fighting and fighting and fighting, and eventually he turned that cream into butter, and he walked out. Uh, that's, that's a neat little story about never giving up, and, 
And really when I think about that, I feel like there are some ways in which if you are called to live in a distant land, if you're called to live as a foreigner in another land, that's almost what it's going to feel like. It'll feel like a constant battle. Like you're constantly on the verge of drowning and you just have to keep fighting and fighting and fighting. And you can give up and sink and die. Or you can keep fighting and fighting and fighting and see what happens. I think Daniel, by the way, found himself in that type of situation. Daniel was someone who was taken from his home and he was brought to live in a different land. And not only is it a different land, not only is there different cultures and customs and things like that, but he was a monotheistic worshiper of Yahweh who was brought to serve a king who was a pagan. And throughout the story of the book of Daniel, you will constantly find this unending battle where it's almost like he's on the verge of drowning. The pressure never stops and it's relentless and he's being urged to, uh, to uh, worship huge statues of a king that are brought up or eat foods that he's called not to eat or give up prayer and all of these things. And like constantly he's under threat of death. If he, if he doesn't toe that line just right between faithfulness to God and obedience to his king and, and it's one of the toughest balances that there is. And I think as Christians, hopefully we can see how we find ourselves trying to toe that line and, and, and walk in that balance also. As people who have said, Jesus is our king over and above everything else, that Jesus is the one who has our allegiance, Jesus is the one who I'm going to listen to and obey. Now, there are, you know, other there's governments that we live under, and there are laws that they pass, and there's things that we want to be good, obedient citizens. We want to seek the welfare of the city where we are. We want to be uh, people who, like, are good co-workers and good citizens and all of that. At the same time, we're people who have a different king. And that means sometimes we have to live differently. And that means, I mean, if you look at what Christians try to do as followers of Jesus— and our culture, in the direction that our culture pushes us, it's very clear to see that there's, there's disconnect there. And even among Christians, we have a hard time knowing exactly how much should we embrace our culture as a way of, of fitting in and as a way of trying to not be obnoxious and as a way of trying to, to be good citizens of that culture. And how much should we distance ourselves from our culture as obedient followers of Jesus? And sometimes that's a difficult thing to do. I mean, just think about, uh, think about language, think about clothing, think about entertainment uh, with, when it comes to language, all right? Uh, now we're, we're, for the most part, going to be English speakers, but there's different ways of speaking English. And I can promise you that if you were to take, what, uh, if you were to take a bunch of Christians and give them a list of what words are acceptable words or unacceptable words, Probably even among Christians, there's going to be some, some variation there. Uh, we're not always going to know. Well, like, some Christians are more comfortable using all of these words. And some Christians, you know, have a very short list of, uh, of words that they exclude. And, and, and you try to figure out, okay, well, what's the best way to speak in the world in which we live? Like, Christians have to think about the way that we speak sometimes. How do I speak as someone who can relate to my culture, but also speak as a representative of Jesus? Or what we wear. I know this is true. You can take a list of, uh, of uh, different clothing items, and you can have a bunch of Christians vote on which ones are modest or immodest, or which ones should Christians wear or Christians not wear. And I can guarantee you uh, there's going to be quite a bit of variation there on who thinks what sh is too short, or, or you can wear swimming or not wear swimming. Or, like, and there's going to be quite a bit of variation. And what, 
That variation is, is indicative of the fact that we live in a culture that says this is the way we ought to be, and we serve a God who we should try to be modest and try to, to honor. And, and okay, when you read the Bible, some people try to, try to, I've seen people try to take verses and weave them through to make it like there's these four rules you have to always follow about modesty, but the Bible doesn't do that. Like the Bible doesn't really give you a standard set of this is and this is not modest. And so we have to try to work through that balancing act. Um, when it comes to entertainment, I guarantee you, if I give everyone a list of movies or TV shows or bands or, you know, whatever you want to do for entertainment, and you have to mark what is acceptable and what is unacceptable, there's going to be variation. And some people are going to be very close to this end, and some people are going to be very close to this end. And a lot of times people can be close to their respective ends, uh, all while trying to honor Jesus because it's difficult to figure out that balance. And Daniel is someone who I think masterfully walks that balance of how is it that we live in a world that often doesn't listen to Jesus, while being people who want to, first and foremost, above anything else, honor and listen to Jesus. Uh, how do we actually live in that world? Do you, you know, exclude yourself, build yourself a little monastery, and go spend the rest of your lives secluded and apart from everyone? I mean, that's one end of the spectrum. Uh, that's, that's one option. Uh, or do you live in such a way that no one can tell any difference in anything you do between the person who, whether it's your beliefs or your speech or whatever, you just look like absolutely everyone else. I don't think either of those are necessarily the goal. I imagine it's somewhere in the middle. And I think Daniel becomes a good, uh, a good example of that. But this is something that Christians have to grapple with and have always had to grapple with. When you think about Daniel... Daniel was someone who was an Israelite. He was, he was born uh, in, in his father's land, but then he was taken as a young child from his home to go live as an exile in Babylon. And basically, he was forced to live as a slave there. Um, it, was a, it was a better quality slavery than, than a lot of other people because he was someone who was good-looking and he was smart. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he, he didn't like to waste uh, useful people like that. He didn't want to just kill them. He didn't want to ignore them. So if he was conquering a land and he saw young, intelligent, bright people with a good future, he would take them. He would train them up to be useful to him. And that's what he does with Daniel. And he does that with a number of, of, of young Jewish boys. He takes them and he teaches them for three years the culture and the language and the literature of the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. And he, uh, he wants them to grow up and to learn how to, to be a good, honest Babylonians. And he wants them to be useful to him in his service. He wants to give them good food to eat and take care of them. And that way, they'll become loyal to him, and that way he can use them when he has difficult decisions to make, or when he needs to learn more about, you know, maybe the Jewish culture, or when he needs to uh, have a dream interpreted. Like, they can be people who are useful to his service. And so that's what Daniel was chosen to do. He did not choose that. He was taken against his will from his homeland and forced to do that, and he found that he was going to live the rest of his life under a pagan king following orders that he didn't come up with, that God didn't tell him to do, and that he has to figure out, how do I live as a faithful servant of Yahweh underneath the rulership of a pagan king among people who are not in any way uh, on the same page as me when it comes to my ethics and my morals and my, my worldview and, and my service to God? And like, how do you balance all of that? Those are the questions Daniel has to ask. And one of the reasons Daniel is such a good and helpful and appropriate book 
is because that's a question that followers of Jesus and, and disciples of, of Jesus and, and people who've been obedient to God, those are the types of questions we've had to ask throughout our whole lives, whether we're in Babylon or not. Well, you know, even after the children of Israel were able to return back home and to rebuild their city, they still had to answer these same questions. Because when they returned home, they were not their own autonomous people again. They were ruled by the Persians. And then they were ruled by the Greeks. And they often had to balance, okay, how do I be a faithful Persian, but at the same time a faithful Israelite who, who obeys Torah even above Persian law? Or what about when, when the Greeks became the rulers? What about the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes? We've talked about him before, but he's kind of an important king for understanding some of the conflicts taking place between the end of your Old Testament and the beginning of your New Testament. There's a couple hundred years there in, in our Bibles. And uh, there's a ruler at that time ruling over Judea whose name is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And one of the things that he tries to do is make everyone under his leadership Greek. He, it's called the Hellenization uh, uh, process, and he's trying to Hellenize the, uh, the, the Israelites to make them Greek. And so he does a bunch of things. He, uh, he builds a Greek gymnasium in Jerusalem. He puts an idol to Zeus in the temple. He offers pig on their altar. Like, he does a bunch of things that, if you read Torah, big problems, uh, but he was forcing it upon the Israelites. And people who didn't go along with it were severely punished. He outlawed Sabbath observance. He outlawed the Jewish food regulations. He outlawed uh, circumcision. And so you read those books, First and Second Maccabees, they talk about how the Israelites try to grapple with that. And one of the things that's really fascinating as they're working through how to do this, that they end up going to war, uh, is the Maccabean revolt, is, uh, you, can, you can read about it. But one of the things that's fascinating, as they're trying to work through it, do you know who they talk about in that book? They mention them by name? Daniel. <laughs> Daniel becomes one of their examples as to, like, Daniel found himself in this exact situation, almost. I mean, he was taken to Babylon, whereas we, Babylon came to us, or Greece. But, but the idea is, we find ourselves with this struggle, how do we live with it? And I think you can see the same thing in the life and ministry of Jesus. Only Babylon has changed. Babylon's not Babylon, it's not Greece, it's Rome now. And you think, okay, how do we live as faithful Israelites uh, with the Romans uh, who have, uh, you know, oppressed us and are occupying our land? And I think a lot of the controversies that we read about in the New Testament among early Christians, they are intricately related to this conflict. Things like circumcision. Okay, if a Gentile is going to become a follower of Jesus, does that person need to be circumcised or not? Can we eat with that person? Because what Israel had done in that balance is they had largely secluded themselves so that they wouldn't eat with Gentiles. So like in the book of Galatians, this really comes to a head because at one point when the Gentiles have entered the church, they would eat together. And Peter would eat with Gentiles and Jews and it was no problem. But the Christians at Jerusalem still were uncomfortable with that. So when they came to Antioch, Peter stopped eating with Gentiles and he would only eat with Jews. And you think, well, well, why? Well, a lot of it has to do with cultural identity. Like, you, you're an Israelite. And so you have, in order to maintain that you are faithful to God and a faithful Israelite and someone who uh, has, has received and obeyed the Torah, like, you had to, even though you were dominated by Rome, you had to come up with some way to continue to be your own people. And so they chose things like circumcision and their food uh, laws and their Sabbath observance to, even though Romans were in their land and they couldn't kick them out that way, they could practice their and live in such a way 
that they maintained their own identity. And so then when Gentiles become fellow participants in the kingdom of God, it's like we're going to completely lose our identity if we start saying circumcision doesn't matter. If we start saying that, uh, that food laws and the Sabbath, like if we, if we ignore those things, then all of a sudden we lose who we are. And what Paul tries to do is say who you are should not be defined by works of law, like circumcision. Who you are is now defined by faith in Jesus Christ. That's your identity marker. And that's something you share with Gentiles together. And that, so that's like, that's the main thrust of books like Romans and Galatians. That's trying to change your identity marker from these certain works of law to identity marker like the faith of Jesus Christ and being followers of him. And you say, okay, well, that sounds great. I'm a follower of Jesus now. I still have to figure out how to live as a follower of Jesus in the world around me. And it's not always easy. And we ourselves can have to answer those same types of questions. We are, according to Philippians, we're citizens of heaven. It's like that's where our citizenship is, even though we live here. The idea of being a citizen of a foreign place and living in a different land, that's something uh, that, that Paul writing that would have been familiar with. Remember, Paul was a Roman citizen. Like he, in Acts, he's about to be beaten and, try, and, uh, and uh, arrested, and he uses his Roman citizenship to avoid beatings and also to appeal to Caesar. Uh, and uh, so he ends up being taken to Rome, but he is a citizen of Rome. But was he raised in Rome? No, he was raised in Tarsus and then, and then in Jerusalem. Uh, so like Paul is someone who, he was a citizen of a distant land, and he lived among a, a distant people. Um, He's saying that's how it is to be a Christian. Your citizenship is in the very kingdom of God where God is seated as king and ruler on a heavenly throne. That's where your king is. That's who you give your loyalty to. That's who you obey any, like, above anyone or anything else. That's who your allegiance is to. Yet you find yourself on this earth. And you may be in the United States, or you may be in, uh, in Rome, or you may be in uh, Guadalajara. You know, like, you could be all kinds of places here, and the governments might change, and you might have different rulers, but your king is always the same king. And you might find yourself with this type of oppression, or you might find yourself with a culture moving in this direction, and every time you have to figure out how it is that I live faithful to my king, even though... The culture around me is pushing in this direction. What, what do I do? And again, those are the questions we have to answer. That's why Daniel, I think, has stayed a relevant book uh, throughout the history of Christianity and the history of Judaism. It, it, it deals with a question that's at the heart of so many of our daily decisions as to who we're going to be. Um, so let's talk about Daniel for a little bit. It's a long introduction. Don't, don't worry. It's, it's, this lesson is not perfectly balanced, so it's a longer introduction than the rest of the lesson. But uh, the book of Daniel begins with Daniel, the story of Daniel being taken from his home and brought to Babylon. Um, he is brought there, and everything about who he is is changed by the Babylonians. They change his language. They change what he reads. They change where he lives. They change even his own name. We call him Daniel. Do you know what they call him? Belteshazzar. Uh, that, that, like, they changed his name to Belteshazzar as soon as he got there. Um, they also changed the name of a couple of his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
If I say those names, most of us don't know who we're talking about. If I say uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and people are like, oh, I know them. Uh, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's the Babylonian name that they were given. So we usually call them by the Babylonian name forced upon them and not by their Jewish names that they were given. Whereas Daniel, we usually stick with his Jewish name and ignore his Babylonian name. Anyway, uh, all of that is to say, like, everything about who they are, the Babylonians tried to change. When you read the book of Daniel in English, uh, you, you don't notice this, but something really incredible happens when you get to chapter 2 and verse 4 through the end of chapter 7. The language of the book itself changes from Hebrew to Aramaic. Uh, the language, it's like you are now entering a foreign land even as you read. And, uh, and the language of the book changes. And chapters 2 through chapter 7, you're now reading, this is one of the few books that's, that, that's written in two different languages in your Bible. Uh, as you read that, you begin, begin to realize it's kind of a, it works well as a unit into itself, those Aramaic chapters. Uh, we talked a couple weeks ago about the idea of a chiasm, where uh, you have, uh, like, the story is told in such a way where, like, the beginning and the end relate to each other, and then the next part and the second to last part do, and then they kind of work towards a peak in the middle. Uh, there's different structures of chiasms, but that's, that's one of them. Um, Daniel, those Aramaic chapters are kind of like a, a large chiasm. Um, the first part of it, chapter 2, there's a dream of uh, nations that are uh, supplanted by further nations. And it goes from Babylon. Uh, there's a big statue that's described with the head of gold, which represents Babylon. And then uh, arms and chest of silver, which would be the Medes and the Persians, and then the belly uh, and thigh of bronze, which would be the Greeks, and then uh, the legs and feet of iron and clay, which uh, is described as the, which it's not, those are actually unnamed in it, but that would historically probably be the Romans. That's how, that's how it was interpreted in the first century. Um, and so you have these different nations, and then you have this mountain, and a rock is cut out of it without hands, and the rock rolls down, and it destroys that huge statue. And then as that statue's laying in ruins, that rock grows into its own huge mountain. Like this is the dream that, that Nebuchadnezzar has and he needs interpreted. And uh, then you're thinking, okay, well, what in the world is that? And Daniel interprets that dream to be like each one of those different metals, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, that's a different nation. And then that huge one that turns into a big mountain, that's the kingdom of God that's coming. And that's one of the reasons why, like, under the Roman Empire, they were expecting the kingdom of God to arise, because you have it prophesied in the book of Daniel. And Jesus was, was alive at that time. Jesus considered himself to be fulfilling that passage. Um, and, so, and so you have that dream in chapter 2. When you go to chapter 7, the end of the chiasm, you have an image of these beasts, these animals coming from the sea. And the first one is a lion with eagle's wings. And the next one is a bear, and it's chewing on some ribs, and it has one shoulder bigger than the other shoulder. And then next you have a leopard that comes out with wings. And then last you have this, uh, this beast that comes out that's not even given a description. It's just a, a big dreaded beast. Uh, like There's no animal named to it. There is a description, but there's no animal associated with it. And then you have a son of man who rides on the clouds up to the one who is uh, seated on the throne, the Ancient of Days, and to him is given a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, languages, and tongues worship and praise that one. And you know what you have there? 
you have the same story as chapter two. You have each of those animals represents a nation, and we're told that. We're told uh, that you have the Babylon, and then you have the Medes and the Persians, and then you have the Greeks, and then you have the Romans, and then you have this kingdom of God given to a son of man that's established there. In these two visions, they bookmark, uh, or they bookend the story of, of Daniel. But what you're seeing there is throughout history, nations rise and nations fall, regimes change, kings change, but there's one Lord and God who's overall. And that foundationally is what needs to be remembered when you find yourself living as an exile. Uh, no matter where you are, there's going to be new presidents. There's going to be nations that sometimes are doing well, sometimes are struggling, sometimes exist, and sometimes they don't. There's going to be war, there's going to be battles, there's going to be death, there's going to be beasts that arise. That's one of the reasons that that every one of those images in Daniel 7, it's a predator and it's a dreadful beast because generally nations act like that. Uh, but then there's the Son of Man and there's his kingdom that endures forever. And that's what your allegiance need to ultimately be given to above anything and everything else. And so you have that that kind of bookends the story. Then you move to chapters 3 and to chapters 6. And in chapter 3, you see the beasts at work doing their dreadful predator things. In chapter 3 of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told that they must worship this big, huge statue that uh, Nebuchadnezzar makes of himself. You know, if you remember the dream that he has in chapter 2, it's of a big, huge statue, and he's the head of gold. So the next thing he does is he builds a huge statue entirely out of gold and says, everyone has to worship the statue. Everyone of all the lands, as soon as the music is played, bow down and worship the statue. And uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they won't do it. Why? They're living there. It's because even though they're living there, and even though they are servants of the king, their ultimate allegiance is not to Nebuchadnezzar. Their ultimate allegiance is not to Babylon. Their allegiance is to the God of heaven. And so they obey God when that conflict arises. And their lives are put on the line because of it. They're cast into a fiery furnace. And yet God protects them through that. You skip to Daniel 6, and you have now the Persians are in charge. Completely different people. Uh, it's not the Babylonians anymore. The Babylonians fell, the Persians took over, and Daniel's still there in the middle of all of it. And there's a law that's made that uh, you can't pray to any of your gods for like 30 days. And you know what Daniel does? He constantly prays as he always has. And because of that, he's thrown into a lion's den. And God protects him again. You have these two miraculous salvation moments. Fiery furnace, lion's den. Uh, and you have both of them by cruel kings. Uh, who, I mean, I, Nebuchadnezzar is perhaps a little bit more cruel in the story than uh, Darius is. But still, you, they do it. Um, and, uh, and in each instance, God miraculously protects his faithful servants, even in a foreign land, which shows that he doesn't stay in Israel. He is the monotheistic God of all. Uh, but then you have chapters four and five, where again, you have interpretations. Chapter four is an interpretation of the dream Nebuchadnezzar has, and Daniel lets him know, basically, you're going to lose your mind and think you're an animal and live like a wild one for a while. Um, it's like his downfall. And then chapter five, it's his grandson, Belshazzar, and he becomes king. And that's where you have the handwriting on the wall that Daniel has to interpret. And it basically says, you're not going to last. You've been weighed. You've been measured. You've been found wanting. You're about to lose your kingdom. And that night, the Persians took over. And so in those two central chapters, you have interpretations from God about regime change, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar falling and being replaced or whether it's Babylon itself falling and being replaced by the Persians. 
Now, we just said a lot of stuff. Um, that, you don't know if you'll, you'll remember everything that was said, but there are a couple constant points that I think throughout there will help us remember how to live as an exile in a foreign land. And one of them is never forget that your allegiance is to God always, no matter where you are. And that's why you are more brothers with a fellow Christian who lives in any other nation in this world than you are just people who are citizens of your own nation. Because you share Jesus with them in a unique and special way in fellowship with them. Think about Daniel for a minute. Daniel was raised in Israel. He was then brought to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar fell and he was under uh, Belshazzar, or Nabonidus would be the, the, the king at that time, but Belshazzar was the one ruling in Babylon. Then Babylon falls and Persia becomes the ruler. And Daniel is there for all of those regime changes. And yet his allegiance never once changed. His ultimate allegiance was always to the one who was the constant and consistent God of all nations, the, the God of Israel. And it's like even when he's taken from Israel to Babylon, he's going to be helpful to the Babylonians. He's going to be a good citizen. He'll do what the king asks. But when the king tries to get him to contradict his obedience to God, he won't do that. He has his lines drawn as to what he'll do. You can change my name, you can change my language, you can change my literature, but you're not going to make me eat your unclean foods. That's Daniel chapter 1. That's kind of the introduction to seeing where Daniel's going to start drawing these lines. Um, in chapter 2, they're not going to worship the idols. In chapter 6, he's not going to stop praying. You see where he has his lines drawn. Now, if the king needs an interpretation and he needs help, will Daniel do it? Absolutely. He's going to be a good citizen. He'll interpret for the king. He'll give him the, the in Daniel chapter uh, 2, he'll give him the description of what his dream means and all that. Like, Daniel will be, and he does well. In fact, when, when Darius is in charge, Daniel does really well, and he is, uh, he is promoted up to one of the top people in all of the land. And so, like, Daniel's not an insurrectionist. He's not trying to bring the downfall of Babylon or Persia. But at the same time, his allegiance is to God, first and foremost. He doesn't attach himself to one king, to one party, to one nation, and say, that's what my allegiance is to over and above anything else. And the way to honor God is by honoring this one nation, this one party that's part of this one nation, or something like that. Sometimes I think, I, I mean, you can look around, I think Christians in our country can fall into that trap thinking the best way to serve God is to serve this political party of this one nation, and that's the way that I'll do it. And that's the way we'll bring about uh, God's justice and goodness on this earth. And that's not really the example you see in the Bible. I think in the Bible, you see Daniel's ultimate allegiance is not to Nebuchadnezzar no matter what. It's not to Belshazzar. It's not to Darius. And it's not even to only serve Israel. When he leaves Israel, he lives as a Babylonian. But he does so faithful to God the whole time. I think that is how you stay consistent in your faithfulness as you're swimming in that cream, trying to turn it to butter and seeing what happens in the world around you. So number one, he remembered his allegiance the whole time. Number two, he prayed constantly. Read Daniel and you'll not only see verses that say he prays, you'll get to read a lot of his prayers. Why is prayer so important? Um, well, a lot of reasons and I can't do a whole lesson on prayer, but I'll say this. I know me. I know some of my strengths and some of my weaknesses. I think there's, there's still more to learn about me. But, uh, but I'll say this about my weaknesses. I don't think I am great at handling peer pressure. 
like when I'm around a bunch of people who all think and act one way, like I know you're supposed to resist peer pressure, and I remember being told that even in high school, like I don't think that's my strength. I think there's an extent to which uh, I, like, I, I enjoy people thinking well of me, <laughs> and, and, and I don't want to be the one who stands out and is the weirdo. And so you know what I've kind of done because of that? First off, I do need to work on that. I admit that. Uh, but another thing is I try to surround myself with good peers so that it's a lot easier. It's like giving into peer pressure will make me a better person if I do that. And so you try to find good peers. That's, that's me. Not everyone's like that. Some people are excellent at standing you know, up to their peers. Like, to me, I recognize that, and so I want to be around good peers. Do you know what's so hard about Daniel's situation? His peers are all Babylonians. You know, I guess you could say he has Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Maybe he can spend some good quality time with them. But there aren't a lot of peers to give him that feeling of home for him to become, like, he's constantly in that turmoil of, of churning that cream. And it's like he's constantly almost, and so one thing that I think is essential if you find yourself in those types of situations is, one, get yourself a good community of faith. But if you can't do that, then you pray to God constantly, and you talk to him because he is on your side as you are on his side. It's like you find community with it. And I think Daniel prays so much. It's such an essential part of his life. He'll give up his life in order to keep praying because that's the only place he can turn sometimes. Praying is essential when you're living as an exile, remembering the God who loved you and who created you. And then number three, uh, Daniel made the decision he wasn't going to be ruled by fear. In chapter one, like his life is on the line probably if he doesn't eat the king's food, but he comes up with this test and says, look, let me go 10 days eating a good Jewish diet uh, or eating a diet of just vegetables is what he says. And, uh, and if, I, if that turns out well, then let me keep doing that. And the, the commander actually says no, but then there's an overseer right, uh, right in between Daniel and the commander. And he says, I'll, I'll let you do the test. And so he does 10 days and they end up letting him keep his diet. Like Daniel was willing to haggle to make things work out uh, in his new life. Daniel was someone who, when his life was on the line about not praying, he still opened up his window and he prayed. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not supposed to worship the, the tower, they, or when they were supposed to, they didn't worship the tower because they weren't letting fear rule them. And I think that is something that Trusting God, not allowing fear of the world around you to rule your decisions becomes an essential part of living as an exile. Uh, I want to close just quickly by remembering the ultimate and greatest exile of them all, the, the prime exile, which is Jesus himself, who came and lived among us from his home in heaven. And while he was here, his allegiance wasn't to any one party or nation or king. His allegiance was to God the whole time and God's kingdom. While he was here, he prayed constantly. Uh, he, he, he did the things that we've been talking about. He, I mean, that was a regular, essential part of his ministry. And also, while he was here, he wasn't ruled by fear. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery furnace, but God saved them through it. Daniel was thrown into a lion's den, and God saved him through it. Jesus was nailed to a cross, and Jesus died. Something else to remember is... Uh, you might not always be able to change your culture, and you might not always get the protection you want. Sometimes it will cost you to live as an exile in a foreign land. Sometimes it will cost you to, to live as a faithful follower of Jesus, even in a world that is not.
but something that has to be remembered is even though the world did their worst to Jesus and darkness came upon the earth as he died in agony on the cross, God still didn't forget him. He was raised three days later. And the hope that we have is that no matter how difficult it gets in this life, whether we get the salvation we want, or like of, you know, not talking about ultimate salvation, but whether we get saved from the lion's den or the fiery furnace, or whether we die in agony, whether we get the easier life or the more difficult life, God is with us, walking with us through it all. God doesn't abandon his people. Even death can't separate you from the love of God. And so that is a hope to carry with you as an exile each and every day. We've been talking about people who were called throughout this sermon series that we've been doing. Daniel did not choose this calling. He was brought to a foreign land against his will, uh, and he lived as a faithful representative of Yahweh while he was there. Let's live as faithful representatives of Jesus wherever we are, uh, wherever we find ourselves, even right here. Maybe that is the calling for why you're here today, why you're at the job that you have, why you have the neighbors that you have, why you have the friends that you have to live as Daniel in that group, or more accurately, to live as a follower of Jesus himself among that group. Uh, If there's anyone here who would like to become a Christian this morning, if there's anyone here who would like the prayers and the help of the church as you try to live your life faithfully, if you uh, have been struggling, we would love to help you in any way that we can. We pray that you would let uh, some of our elders know in the library in the back, or you can come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.